Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up. If everyone's agreeing with you, you wouldn't be sitting at a four-year ban. The overall incidence of sudden cardiac death is about 100 per 100,000 people. You could almost place a bet that every single day someone will die in a Walmart store in America. And there's no doubt that his improvements over the last 12 months are down to the shoes. So over the last couple of weeks, we've had a lot of news around the subject of sports science, and we're going to take the opportunity in this podcast to uh, kind of get our head around some of the issues and some of the things that have happened in this space. Um, just very briefly, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, one person called Shelby Houlihan, a top American runner who uh, got uh, bust for anabolic steroids. You don't often hear that in the world of running these days. And then our main topic of discussion today is going to be around Christian Eriksson, the Danish footballer who collapsed on the field uh, during a football match a couple of weeks ago and uh, we'll be able to just uh, analyse exactly what happened to him and look at the broader subject of uh, cardiac health in athletes and people in general. And then finally, just to wrap things up today, the very controversial subject of uh, track spikes, which are making a huge impact, or we think they're making a huge impact in the world of running with so many world records being established in the five and 10,000 metres over the last couple of weeks. Could it be the shoes? Could it be the athletes? Well, that's one of the things we're going to be discussing today. But let's kick off a little bit with the story of Shelby Houlihan, who uh, was caught and banned for taking anabolic steroids. And Ross, I mean, that's something that you don't hear very often these days. Uh, that's kind of Ben Johnson era type stuff, people taking anabolic steroids. Yeah, and I suppose, especially in an endurance athlete, but we, of course, know that they do use them. I'm surprised they get caught. And that's <laughs> that's the issue more that causes some surprise is actually a big name going down. Most of the time these days in anti-doping, they tend to catch the minnows and not the big names. And while Houlihan's not in the league of, say, Hassan and some of the athletes we'll talk about a little bit later, she certainly is a big name. So it was a big story. And I'd actually heard about a week or two ago that this was coming. There was a rumor that it was going to happen because, as it's turned out, the positive test was returned in December last year. Yeah. Um, she was notified about it in January this year and then decided that to try and make the qualifying for the Olympics, the US trials, which happened soon, she went straight to the Court of Arbitration and apparently on the 11th of June they ruled against her and hence she got a four-year ban. So, yeah, it was a big story that broke overnight and it is yet another contaminated meat case. Yeah, pork this time, wasn't it? It was a pork burrito, apparently. So, I mean, how feasible is it? Is it in a general sense, contaminated foods or supplements have been known to cause positive tests? There's no doubt that it can happen. Yeah, I wish I could give you a number say, you know, there's a one in a thousand chance that your pork burrito contains nandrolone <laughs> and, and that you've consumed <laughs> enough of that and been tested at just the right time to then produce the positive result. That's 
You see, so there's a series of things that have to happen. Is it impossible? Of course not. It could happen. Is it possible? Is it probable? I, I doubt it. And the most interesting thing about this case is that in her statement and in the statement of her coach, they are both adamant that she's innocent. Yeah. And she talks, for instance, about having a receipt for this burrito. She talks about using her cell phone's location tracking to show that she was in that location at that time. She mentions undergoing a polygraph, which I know is not doesn't hold much water legally. You can pass those even if you're guilty. And she talks about having a hair sample analyzed because nandrolone sticks around in the system for quite a long time. And sometimes mm. you find it in the hair if it's being used regularly and in large enough amounts. Right. So if she, if she did all that and still went to the court of arbitration and they still hit her with four years, then I'm wondering what I'm not hearing. Because there've been other athletes who've gone with similar defenses and they've had their case either thrown out and mm. they've been cleared or they've had their ban reduced from this four years to two years, sometimes one year. And so it's not unheard of that the authorities will look favorably upon a contaminated food or supplement defense. Mm. So if you can show reasonable grounds for contamination, they are often sympathetic. And so to get four years, despite all that, tells me that there's something we're not seeing in the story so far. So her protestations that we're seeing on social media, and don't forget, she's a very high-profile athlete. She's mm. the American record holder in both the 1500 and the 5000. Is it? I find it a bit strange because does that particular substance aid athletes doing those sort of distance? Because we normally associate anabolic steroids, and particularly nandrolone, to sprinters specifically. Mm. Well, of course, because they are recovery drugs. And so they would improve your ability to train hard consecutive days or 10 times in a two-week cycle. And the, the, so by enabling training, they're enabling performance enhancement. Right. So there's no doubt. And that's why even Tour de France cyclists are using anabolic steroids because the muscle recovery and the metabolic recovery you get from that is what enables harder training. And that's where the performance is unlocked. So it's not surprising that they would use anabolic steroids. Nandrolone... I was looking at a couple of studies this morning. Um, it sticks around for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. There was one study I saw where they gave 20 men admittedly intramuscular doses. So that's a lot straight into the muscle. Um, and they were able to find it in the urine for up to a month afterwards, even at relatively low injected doses. Yeah. So if an athlete knows they're in the testing pool and uses nandrolone, that's really a big risk. But... They could microdose with it, use very, very small amounts that they're taking and potentially get a very small benefit without being detectable. So there is that side of it as well. So there's a lot of fog here is the point I'm trying to make. And as I say, until, until we know, and I'm not even sure if we ever will, the specific um, arguments that were heard by the Court of Arbitration, it's going to be very difficult to decide because the other thing, sorry, that Houlihan said is, that when she got the results, she consulted with anti-doping ex experts and they agreed with her. She says that she had the, the hair sample assessed and WADA agreed with what that meant. Well, if everyone's agreeing with you, you wouldn't be sitting with a four-year ban. So obviously, yeah. at some point, the other side, which in this instance is the Athletics Integrity Unit, has come along and shown something else that was compelling against you. And we don't know what that is. So right now, all we're getting is a, is a very coordinated. There was a, a press conference last night in which they rolled out her, her coach, a lawyer, athlete testimonials in support of her character. It was a, it was a very strong show of solidarity and support. 
and we've not yet seen anything from the other side. So I'm, yeah, I'm uncertain at this point. But I'll tell you one thing though: is that when you've got other athletes, and there've been a few U.S. athletes, there was a long jumper called Jarian Lawson, mm-hmm. uh, Ag Wilson is another 800 meter runner, Brenda Martinez. They all had their bands reduced or thrown out by U.S. anti-doping or the Court of Arbitration because they were able to show contamination as a source. And now you've got someone who's not. And the inconsistency between those troubles me. And that's not, a, that's not me saying that Houlihan's likely innocent and the others were too. It could be that everyone was guilty. But the, this idea that sometimes you get four years and sometimes you get nothing with pretty much the same argument, mm-hmm. that's something that I think they need to look at. Because again, if if Houlihan had all that location receipts, I mean, if if that if that burrito selling Mexican truck stop that she went to, it wasn't free range, is selling, <laughs> and it's unlikely it's changed, right? Between the time she got yeah. notified of the test and the time she had it, which was one month, she's she says she had it, I think, the fourteenth of December. She's notified of the result on in January. So at that point, go and test the meat from that stand. Yeah, makes sense. And if that. Okay, there's a chance now you tested and there was a batch that was contaminated. You're getting unlucky by the by the second here. Mm. Um, but anyway, but if dust is positive, then you've obviously got a good defense. Then you've got a good defense. So I can mm. only assume that that wasn't done or it didn't test positive because everything she's saying. Why would you put steroids in pork? I suppose. I suppose they use it yeah. to produce more muscle experts. in their pigs. You know, <laughs> greater yields, greater yeah. profits. Yeah. That's what it is. It's commercialism. Yeah. And so it's, it's known, by the way, like so in 2008, researchers warned Olympic athletes not to consume meat from countries and they listed them. China was on it. Mexico was on that list from countries where the, the animal rearing practices are mm-hmm. dodgy. Yeah. In 2011 or 12, the World Anti-Doping Agency issued a similar statement warning athletes against the risk of contamination from certain food types. So it's not as though this is a total surprise. But I'm still hugely intrigued by what Houlihan had at her disposal to try and convince them and how badly short of it she fell. Because a four-year ban means they looked at it and said, we don't believe anything you just said. You have failed completely to convince us of contamination. And everything she's saying makes it sound like it's viable. So that's going to be interesting. And then the other thing, sorry, one last thing is, these days, when an East African breaks a world record, everyone says, hmm, got to be doping, right? I mean, that's what, ha- that's what happens. Yeah. When an East African fails a drugs test, nobody gives them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. But now you should see on Twitter this morning, everyone's going, hmm, testing's dodgy, you know, the procedures. It seems a little unfair that you can fail for contaminated food. And just it's shown up again for me, the hypocrisy and standards about how people judge these things, you know. Yeah. The, if this was a if this was a an athlete who in their mid twenties improved significantly coming out of Eastern Europe or Africa, everyone wouldn't even need a positive test to call them a doper. Mm. And here we are saying no, 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 character witnesses trust the athlete, trust the coach. Like, fine, but then use that same standard on other athletes also. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens with that, and uh, yeah, certainly just interesting. I mean, am I am I right in saying it was Ben Johnson got. God, when he was bust for doping, it was steroids, wasn't it? Yeah, it was stanozolol. Stanozolol, that's right. That was in the area that they were the making steroids an- specifically for athletes. Yeah, Right, yeah. yeah. And he had those red eyes. Yes. <laughs> so now I'm looking at pictures of uh, Shelby this morning, and she seems to have normal eyes. So <laughs> yes. She's not taking stanozolol. No one's using that anymore, <laughs> except in the gyms. 
<laughs> where they don't get tested. Nandrolone, by the way, has it's a famous one. Like Linford Christie was a Nandrolone positive. Uh, here in South Africa, we've had a couple of rugby players test positive for it also. Mm. And similarly blame supplements and foods. Um, contaminated meat, Contador did. It wasn't for Nandrolone, it was for Clenbuterol. So there's that, a was, that was beefy claimed, wasn't it? That was contaminated Spanish beef, beef yeah. Spanish beef. So the point is that it can happen, and that's why an answer to your first question. In general, contaminated food can explain anti-doping uh, violations. Yeah. Uh, in specific, that's where things get interesting, and that's why Jerry and Lawson, Aggie Wilson, these cases aren't necessarily identical. But but if the athlete can show enough, then they almost always get some reduction. Yeah. And the fact that that didn't happen here again. I'm sorry. This is the third time I've said it. The most interesting thing to me is that they didn't just they didn't just reduce it. They they went all in. Yeah. And so, whatever bar she had to clear, she didn't even nudge. She she was way under it. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think all the vegetarians out there are going. Well, I told you vegetarianism is a good thing. I've never heard of contaminated tofu. So. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so let's move on to a big story in the world of soccer. We don't uh, give soccer a lot of coverage on our podcast, uh, mainly because uh, I'm not a massive fan of soccer. I know Ross is a bit of a soccer fan, and maybe we will do Why is that, something. Mike? Tell the listeners why I don't you know. don't like football. I don't like football because I don't like the histrionics that go along with it. So where you, had you been had you been <laughs> watching Saturday and you saw a player go down, you probably would have said, this is why I don't watch football. Well, I would have first of all thought, well, he's gone down because he's faking some sort of injury right. if I'd seen it happen. Yeah. But but as it was, it was as the it midfielder, was, um, Christian. But. Yeah, everything but. Christian Eriksen mm. falling down face first uh, midway through a match against Finland in the Euro 2020 clash in Copenhagen. And of course, all the players rushed to his help. There was um, sheets put around him because I thought he looked like it was pretty serious. He has shown recovery now, um, mm. but it's opened the subject around around cardio and cardiac health in mm. athletes. And, and that we don't want to focus necessarily on what happened to Kristen Eriksson, but we are talking about how this kind of stuff happens. I mean, it seems strange to think that an athlete of his caliber, and athletes in general, would have any risk when they get to a certain level because surely at some point, as they get to that level, any kind of inadequacy or weakness in the heart would have shown up earlier than at international level. Well, that is the question. I mean, I was watching this game, and when it happened, it was it was startling. And his teammates surrounded him because initially there were no sheets, and so his teammates made a cordon around him to stop the cameras from mm. showing what was happening. But you could still see between them, you could still see that they were doing compressions and that they were applying the. You said compressions; they were basically pumping his chest. Yeah, so it was pretty. Wow. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't clear. So just to just to start off on the factual note when there is a a collapse like that the most likely candidate is cardiac sudden cardiac arrest or something related to the heart there are some other there are some other um, potential diagnoses there's there's pulmonary embolisms there's a stroke so you can sometimes rule out rule those out but it was quite clear that he was being compressed and at at some point they also got the old defibrillator on him Subsequently, the Danish doctor said that it took one shock and his and his um, pulse was restored, and so that's really good for his prognosis, of yeah. course. But um, these things do happen. That's the thing. And I saw I saw a lot of discussion on Twitter afterwards about how this shouldn't happen in athletes and so on. And I think it shows that people don't know the base rate of these things. Um, unfortunately, sudden cardiac death is, whilst not common, not rare either. And so mm-hmm. in a global population, so first of all, let's define sudden cardiac death. It is a death that results within one hour 
with cardiovascular causes in someone who before that had been thought healthy. Right. So right. if it was witnessed, and if it's not witnessed, then 24 hours earlier the person was alive and then suddenly has died of something. So there are no warning signs. There are often no warning signs. So in the in the jargon, they call it they call this they say that the sentinel sentinel event is often death. The first sign is death, which is terrible for everyone concerned because yeah. it seems to come out of nowhere. It's as a result of some underlying condition that has been undetected or is undetectable. And what makes it even more difficult is sometimes even autopsy can't confirm what the cause was. So there's a thing called an ANSUD, an autopsy negative, sudden, unexplained death. And about 10% of them fall into that category. They, they cannot even be attributed to anything after death through autopsy. Sure. So unexpected death with cardiovascular causes within one hour of symptom onset if witnessed. That's a sudden cardiac death. Now, I'm super relieved that we're not here talking about that in this case. But the fact that it happened to a 29-year-old, I think, elite athlete, is a cause to start talking about this and make people understand a little bit. The overall incidence of sudden cardiac death is about 100 per 100,000 people. That's from studies in Australia, New Zealand, England, the USA. Now, that's to simplify, that's one in a 1,000 per year. So in a country like Australia with 20 million, they have about 20,000 of these a year. Here in South Africa, if we had the same rate, 55,000 a year, the USA has 350,000 deaths like this a year. Wow. So that's not trivial. Yeah. And so, and, and I mean, I remember even on uh, that night, the Saturday night, I, I commented on Twitter, I said, it's, it's basically the law of large numbers. You, you, could, you could almost place a bet that every single day someone will die in a Walmart store in America because there are 100,000 of them in the stores. And at this rate, that's what's going to happen. You know, someone in a Walmart will die. Sure. Okay. And that's so. So if you that's that's an interesting observation. <laughs> but that's an it's the application of the principle. So you know, if South Africa's got fifty five thousand cases like this a year. Then work out the daily rate. Yeah. Now, um, that 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 number is that's general population. Obviously. That's general population. Yeah. In younger people, obviously, the risk comes down enormously because by by far age is the biggest risk factor for sudden cardiac death. And as we get older, the the cause of sudden cardiac death changes. It becomes more about the coronary artery disease and cardiovascular disease, which then I'll I'll get into some of that in a moment. In young people, they reckon the prevalence is about 1.3 per 100,000 per year, which is one in Mm 60,000. So if you took 60,000 people and you monitor them for a year, on average in a typical population, one of them would have a sudden cardiac death. Right. Now, when you look at it like that, and you've covered enough mass participation events in your time, it means that every five to six years in a big race, marathon or something, someone will have this happen to them. Because every year there's 10 of them, 10,000. Mm-hmm. And if it's one in 60,000, that's going to happen. The challenging and the tricky bit here is that it's more likely to happen during exercise when that risk exists than at rest. Which is the why we always see the headlines when somebody dies in a marathon that exactly. it was the it was the running that killed him. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now the truth yeah. is that those athletes, even at normal mild degrees of training, are relatively protected against this kind of thing happening. Um, not for some of the congenital inherited conditions, because mm. those you, you just have or you don't have, but certainly for some of the other risk factors like the coronary artery disease, the high blood pressure, the diabetes and so on the risk of strokes, the cardiovascular events, 
your, your risk is lower if you are fit and healthy. But when that risk exists, it's more likely to be realized in the process of doing the sport. And that's why you see it happen at the very moment that it should be protect. People think it should be protective. So that's the, that's the paradox that yeah. exists around that. But coming back to Ericsson, um, the issue is now around athletes. It's very difficult to know exactly how common this is because A, how do you define athletes? I mean, are we athletes because we cycle three times a week or do we need to race? I like to consider myself an athlete. When I, <laughs> when I drive home from work or, or from here now and I go past the local park, there'll be a hundred guys playing football. Are they yeah. considered athletes? If one of them was to have a sudden cardiac event uh, playing on a Tuesday afternoon, would that be counted as an athletic death or not? So anyway, the point I'm trying to make is quantifying this is more difficult than you might imagine. But it seems that the rate is between 1 in 40,000 and 1 in 80,000 per year. So again, in in this country like the United States where there are three or 400,000 athletes, there will be five or six cases like this every single year. Mm. And so Ericsson, while it's a tragedy, it's not... A complete bolt from the blue. Yeah. In fact, nine years ago, Fabrice Muamba was playing for Bolton against Tottenham. He collapsed. Same thing. Cardiac arrest. He didn't have a pulse for 78 minutes. Astonishing. 78 minutes? 78 minutes. They did compressions and defibrillated on him. The chances of surviving that are infinitesimally low. Wow. It is unbelievably low. He's now got a pacemaker and he works for football and he was interviewed after the Ericsson thing, talking about the long road back and so on. And he, he's a, an amazing story. I bet he saw the light. It's <laughs> Came like, back. I mean, you, you, yeah, it was, it was astonishing. Like yeah. he had no business surviving that and, and he did. So that was a miracle. Sure. Um, there have been some Italian footballers in the last 20 years who've died. Uh, American long distance runner Ryan Shea collapsed during the new, uh, Olympic trials yep. in 2008, I think it was. I remember that. Um, that was similar. So these things do happen in athletes. And when they do, they tend to be in high profile stages in front of a global television audience. And then that's why we discuss them. Uh, just to define what we mean by a, a cardiac arrest, what, what is the... What happens in that situation? Um, yeah, so if it's cardiac arrest, it's electrical in nature. So it's an arrhythmia. Normally, remember, your heart beats at a rhythm that is driven by various little nodes and electrical conductors within the heart, to use that analogy. And but what's interesting about that is it's actually not a constant rhythm, isn't it? We discussed this on a mm. podcast a while back, that it's not a metronomic in its rhythm, but it, yeah. is, it is a rhythm that, uh, that your own heart has. Mm. Yeah, and. Okay. When that fails, you get what's called an arrhythmia. Um, and eventually what happens is that the normal conduction of the signal, which drives the contraction of the muscle, goes awry. And the result is that the heart doesn't beat. It, it um, think of the word, flutters. Mm-hmm. It's like a fluttering. Mm-hmm. Of course, this is, <laughs> this is not good. And so that's, that's typically what happens. Now, that happens for many different reasons. The most common of them in young athletes, because we at this point we make a distinction between young and old. In older athletes, the most common reason, as I said, is coronary artery disease. So you get these atherosclerotic plaques that then either block blood supply or they break off and then completely obstruct blood supply. Mm-hmm. There's some debate among the experts as to whether it's a it's a plaque that ruptures and breaks off or if it's just a supply and demand thing because the blood vessels are narrowed by these plaques but in a marathon big study in a marathon for instance the average age of people who died 
of cardiac events was 42, and they were all as a result of coronary artery disease. <laughs> that's pretty young to have it, but yeah. that's what happens. In contrast, when you start talking about younger athletes, you're talking about what are typically inherited conditions. They can be acquired. I'll tell you some of those. They're inherited conditions, and they involve often some structural abnormality of the heart. So, for instance, abnormal coronary arteries, um, cardiomyopathies. There's the most common of them is called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Hypertrophy meaning enlarged muscle cardiomyopathy meaning the pathology of the heart and what happens there is that the heart muscle gets thicker and thicker mm. the left ventricle which is the main chamber that pumps blood every time a heart contracts gets the wall of that that ventricle gets thicker and thicker and thicker to the point eventually where those little cardiomyocytes the, the muscle cells become disorganized and disarrayed and then that triggers this arrhythmia that's thought to occur in between one in 200 and one in 500 people which is pretty common. Yeah. And then when the additional stress of exercise is imposed on that person, it can trigger the, the cardiac arrest. Other, other myopathies, there's one called dilated cardiomyopathy. There's a right ventricular cardi cardiomyopathy. Uh, there are a few of those. And th those are the most common um, causes of, of the death in, sudden, in, in young athletes. Now, those are structural abnormalities, which are inherited, mm. genetic in, in origin. Then there are also structural abnormalities that can be acquired. And one of those is myocarditis. That's an inflammation of the heart muscle. Myo, muscle, card, heart, and itis inflammation. We spoke about that two or three podcasts ago because we were talking about COVID. Yeah. And there's, there's some evidence now, also in the US, that roughly one in 200 people who had COVID with symptoms will develop some kind of myocarditis that sticks around for a little while afterwards. So that, and that's, by the way, that's about the same rate as for flu. So I'm going to say we often associate myocarditis with flu symptoms exactly. or post-flu. Yeah. Exactly. So in that period after having had the flu, there is an increased risk of myocarditis, which is a risk of sudden cardiac death. And the stat there is one in about nine or 10 cases of sudden cardiac death was linked to a myocarditis. <laughs> so it's not implausible for Ericsson that this is the situation. It was flu or COVID and triggers it. We don't know that, but it's, it happens one in 10 cases. <laughs> and then there are a couple of others as well that, that can be acquired over time. Now, th those structural ones are discoverable through screening. Well, that was my question. Surely an athlete of his caliber yeah. would have been tested to the nth degree to so yes. you would see if there was any pathology there that existed. Yeah, certainly in the case of the hypertrophic hypertrophic cardio, cardiomyopathy. <laughs> you, if you're struggling to say it, I'm not even going to attempt yeah, it. <laughs> HCM. Yeah. Uh, you see, where it gets tricky now, though, is that athletically trained people get bigger hearts through training. Yes, athletes or swimmers' hearts. I've right. heard of that. Yeah. So athletes' heart is a syndrome which is non-pathological. Now it's not bad for you, but in response to the increased load, volume, because you're pumping more blood more often than a non-athletic person, or pressure, because you're also pumping against higher blood vessel pressures, your heart gets larger. The cavities, the left ventricle, increases in size, and the wall gets thicker. So there comes a point where the athlete's heart, the, sorry, the athlete's heart or the swimmer's heart is, because in swimmers, 
because they're horizontal and there's also water pressure on their bodies, this, this, the pressure stimulus to cause the heart to get bigger is slightly higher than for cycling and running, right? Yeah. But endurance athletes tend to get larger cavities, larger ventricles or, or, or spaces. And strength training athletes tend to get thicker muscles because they're pushing against pressure, whereas endurance is against volume. This, mm. Does this make yeah, sense? Yeah, makes sense, yeah. So anyway, so the, the problem is that sometimes when you look at a very good athlete's heart, it looks like a cardiomyopathy heart. <laughs> Either the left ventricle is dilated or the left ventricle wall is thickened and so on. So it actually takes quite a skilled cardiologist to distinguish between them and not throw up a bunch of false positives. Or to exclude a, a, a pathology on the basis of saying that the heart is... is so almost you have to look at the lifestyle of a person in that situation you, you, to find out whether it's right. a natural adaptation to athletic stress rather you, than a problem. You have to know the patient, yeah. you have to know the person you're assessing, and you have to know a little bit about their history. Because otherwise... And this is one of the things about screening is that you, you throw up these false positives or negatives, usually false positives because you falsely diagnose this guy's got this condition that affects one in 200, one in 500, but he's yeah. actually just athletically conditioned. Um, so that's that's one of the issues with screening. But but you're right, and, and especially in Ericsson's case, because he's just joined an Italian team, and the Italians are known to do very comprehensive cardiac screening on their athletes because they've had deaths in young footballers in the last 20 years. And so it's now policy for them to do as much comprehensive screening as they can, which includes ECG, um, ultrasounds, and other cardiac exams. So it, it would feel unlikely that Ericsson didn't have, um, sorry, it would feel unlikely that there was some structural thing with Ericsson that would have been undetected through his career. But you never know, I mean, wouldn't want to speculate. Mm. But then what that leaves you is on the other side, is a whole bunch, and this is where it gets really mysterious. Um. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's a whole bunch of conditions that cause sudden cardiac death where this, the heart is normal structurally, but there are these arrhythmias. Um, Brugada syndrome, Wolf-Parkinson-White are two of them, long QT, short QT syndrome. Now, some of these things can be picked up through ECG under the eye of a very well-trained, qualified cardiologist, but sometimes they can't. Mm -hmm. And then, as I say, the first sign is often death, and it shows up negative on an autopsy. Uh, so that's that's the thing is people would like to believe that medicine has the ability to predict, assess, explain, and unfortunately that's not always the case. We always like to know that we could go and do a test once a year to make sure that our hearts are fine, but actually right. in reality it might only pick up some of the things yeah. that might be an issue. And it's not I mean, is, it, is it if you're a competitive athlete um, who is participating in sport and you're slightly older, is it something that's worth investing in that once every two years or once every year you go and have an EKG um, to see whether your heart is 
working fine? I mean, or, or should you only do that once you potentially have any sign of an issue? Yeah, so the, the simple answer is it depends. Um, <laughs> you see, you always say that. I know. It's, <laughs> it's, only, it's the simple and true answer. You don't, I'll say that in response to your, the last part of that question is you don't wait for the sign. Um, Why would you go? Well, <laughs> Unless it's because like it's precautionary. Going, so, yeah. so in, in these, they reckon 30% of the time, and it's obviously this is very difficult to study because, yeah. I don't know, did I mention the survival rates are literally in the single digit percentages? You didn't mention it. So, so for, for sudden cardiac events, yeah. the survival is literally between 2 and 8%. Yeah, you that, can't wait is, for that event it to is, check. Right, and, and so you have one... Well, you don't even necessarily get one chance. You, yeah. you, it's, it's, it's game over on the first occasion. It's like the sentinel event thing. If you've got, by the way, the defibrillators, the, the chances of survival goes up. There's a study they did in the US and Canada where without defibrillation and compression, survival rate was 7%. If they did compressions, I think it goes up to the mid-teens, 15, 16. And if they applied a defibrillator, it goes into the 30s. So it makes a massive difference. But still, that's low. But the point I was trying to make is that only about 30% of the people who suffer these and survive later say, you know what, in the, in the days or weeks leading up to it, there were some signs I noticed. I was, yeah. had shortness of breath. I had a tight chest. I felt dizzy. I fainted once or twice. And then you say, oh, actually, that warning sign is the thing you might have paid attention to. So if you're listening to this and you have any of those, you really do need to sit up and pay attention. But... 30%, which means that 70% had nothing. Yeah. So you're, you're twice as likely, more than twice as likely to have nothing before it happens than something. And that's why you shouldn't wait. But whether you need to go the whole hog and have the ultrasounds, the cardiac MRIs, the ECGs, the full-on invasive testing, that's different because of the cost and the chances that actually you find something that's not even real. Yeah. So what I would suggest, and this is the this is the policy, by the way, in most sports around the world, the American Cardiac Association and the Heart Association recommend this, is that the 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 initial screen is a typical medical, and you focus very heavily on family history, because so many of these conditions that cause this are inherited. So these arrhythmias, this cardiomyopathy, they're inherited. So for instance, have you got any members of the family who've ever needed a pacemaker? If the answer to that is yes, then your likelihood of something happening to you goes up enormously. So that, that initial medical screen is hugely important. Then a basic medical assessment, cardiac assessment, would probably do everyone quite good every couple of years. And if, yeah. and if there's even a hint from that that you need something like a stress ECG, then by all means you go for it. Yeah, uh, And if that shows that you need more, then you do the cardiac MRI. But don't go rushing off now because you just want to make sure of something. And Because as I say, sometimes you'll find things out that you didn't actually need to know. Mm. And then you change your life on the basis of a false positive. Yeah. And speaking of which, there's an ethical question here. Is Let's say you have one of these congenital conditions, whether it's the the Wolf-Parkinson-White or the um, HCM, the myopathies, those things aren't guaranteed to kill you. They increase your risk. But by how much? No one can really say. Mm. So now, if I'm a professional athlete, I wouldn't want to know that necessarily. I wouldn't want my employers to know that. Maybe I would, but I wouldn't want them to. So when we start talking about compulsory medical screening and you start getting into ethical medical confidentiality, insurance issues you can see why in the world of elite sport it's not so easy and then of course what people will say is 
even if we screen you, we might miss you. Mm. We might only reduce the risk of death by 15%. But if we have defibrillators, we can do it by 25%. So instead of screening, let's just put defibrillators everywhere. Yeah. So that's the kind of ethical yeah. thing that the people have to weigh up on this issue as well. Yeah. Well, it's a much bigger, I mean, it's a, it's a moment in time in a soccer match that has uh, obviously uh, given us a topic to discuss here today. But it's very interesting mm. that, uh, you know, I think for top athletes, you don't perceive yourself as being at risk mm. of these kind of conditions, but yeah. they do happen as they happen in the general population. Yeah. And then one other thing I just want to say, which I think is really interesting, is that in the US, they've done this now in college and American professional sports. The risk is hugely affected by ethnicity and race. African-Americans have a much higher risk than Caucasians and Hispanics. <laughs> and basketball players have an incredibly high risk. So it's really interesting. When you look at men higher than women, that's mm. true. Uh, African-American higher than Caucasian. Basketball higher than other sports. And so when you combine that, the, almost like the perfect storm for sudden cardiac death is high-level African-American basketball players. One in 3,000, they reckon. Wow. Is at risk for sudden cardiac and death. And any reason why that is? Well, Do they know why? Part of it is because basketball requires height, mm. and height often comes married to a condition called Marfan syndrome, mm -hmm. which can affect the heart. And then you get aortic problems. You know, the aorta is the main vessel out of the heart, artery out of the heart. So part of it's linked to that, but those conditions are rare. They can't explain why mm -hmm. a basketball is one in 3,000, whereas a track athlete is one in 50, one in 60,000. I mean, sure. it is a, it's, it's a massive, massive increase sweet, in yeah. risk. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, um, in football, a lot of African footballers, particularly of West African descent, playing in Europe, have also seen an increase in the number of cases there. So, it's, that, so that's a population where probably mandatory comprehensive screening is necessary because that risk is so high that you almost have to anticipate and know that it's there. So th that's why the answer to your question is it depends. It depends yeah. on so many different things. And I think you just have to take one small step at a time. And if you need to take the next step, you do. Otherwise, otherwise don't, because you're going to try and discover things that you maybe didn't necessarily yeah. need to know. I suppose the lesson is if you are a little bit worried about uh, anything and uh, as Ross has described some of those uh, warning signs, if you're worried at all, just go and see your doctor. I'd rather be safe than sorry. So let's move on to uh, a slightly more controversial subject. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen uh, world records in the 10,000 metres for men with uh, uh, Let's and Bet um, Gide and Sefan Hassan both breaking the world record in the 10,000 metres. Then, of course, Shelley Ann Fraser Price uh, becoming the second fastest woman in the 100 metres since the, the back in the late 80s. And uh, of course, the subject has now come up around these now super spikes. And last year, we did a podcast called The Shoe That Broke Running, which talked about the marathon shoe that was changing the face of marathon running and how these shoes gave a, quite a significant advantage to people who were running in them. It's now Nike have now gone one step further and now produced the super shoe, which is now, we don't know. Is yeah. it or is it not the difference between where the record was and where it is now because the records that we're seeing in the 10,000 are better than the Chinese records established in the early 1990s which were clearly doped records. Yeah, yeah. Now they're running faster than that and those records, there seems to be a, a lot of them now and logically you're saying, well, how, what, how, how much of a role does these super shoes have in, in these well, records? Well, I mean, the Chinese records were so clearly doped, it was just laughable. And that, I think the women's 10 was 29.31. Yeah. And nobody got within 20 seconds of that for about 20 years. 
And then Alma Zayana broke it in the Olympics, running effectively the last 5Ks of yeah, time trial. The first she, final of the Olympics, I remember. I remember that. that morning. It was in the morning yeah. in, in Rio. Nobody saw it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and now you've got, in the course of two, two or three days, you had two athletes push it down to literally the border of a 28-something. It's 29.01 now. And the thing about all the records from the 90s, not just the Chinese, is that all of them were suspicious because they all mm. come from a period in the sport where there was no comprehensive, reliable testing for the method of doping used at the time, which was EPO. They could not detect it in that time. So I'm afraid to say, and as much, I mean, I grew up watching the athletes from the 90s. They were my running heroes. But I'm afraid to say that their performances are highly questionable because the practice of doping was so widespread and the testing of that doping was so underpowered. Yeah. So when we, and that's, and that's why, by the way, when, and I mean, we always give anti-doping a little bit of a hard time, but the, the introduction of the passport certainly put the brakes on it. It didn't get rid of doping, but it slowed it down. It, it, yeah. it reduced the size of the doping before you could get away with, with what these guys used to do. And so the records that were set in the 90s and the early 2000s were untouched for years. I mean, there, was a, there were a couple of years where men didn't even break 13 minutes for 5,000. Yeah. Um, and so it looked like distance running was, was in, a, in a different generation. I mean, it, it was. It was literally a slower generation. And those records were untouchable. And now all of a sudden we've got new world records in the 5 and 10 for men. We've got new world records in the 5 and 10 for women. The 1500 records are like looking outrageous. There was a three, two women ran a 353 the other day, which isn't even the world record. That had been set a couple of years before. Remember the world champs in 2019 was an outrageously fast 1500. Yeah. That was when the first discussion about the spikes came up. Yeah. Because people said, hang on, what's Laura Muir wearing on her feet? Those look like the road shoes. They had this big stack height. There was talk about a stiff carbon plate. Turned out not to be carbon, but there was a stiff plate in there. It was just made of peabacks. Mm. So I think the signs were on the on the wall from two or three years ago that the same technology in the road shoe was obviously going to make its way to the track. Yeah, The authorities knew that because when they met at the beginning of 2020 to discuss regulation, they put in place specific limits on the height of shoes on the track and on the road. They gave the track spikes enough leeway that they could still put these plates in there and they could still build up the stack height with this super high energy return foam yeah which is this p-backs that not give used yeah. yeah and it's yeah. the, it's the it's combination like a sort of elastomer of some kind exactly I, yeah. it's a chemical thing that i'm yeah. not f familiar with but mm. in any event you've got now the two versions of the nike spikes is the dragonfly which has got this p-backs foam and a p-backs plate mm-hmm and then there's a carbon plate and P-backs foam in another shoe called the Air Zoom Victory or something like that. There's mm -hmm. two versions of it. Other companies will no doubt follow suit. Adidas has got a track spike which has come out already and the people are saying it's as good if not better. So maybe we'll see even more outrageous performances. Yeah. But then the upshot of all this is that we're now seeing performances that 10 years ago were impossible. Five, five years ago were impossible. And we don't know whether these performances are physiological breakthroughs, technological breakthroughs, or doping breakthroughs. Because in any other time, we would probably be able to say that the, the doping landscape probably hasn't changed much. So therefore, we can assume that unless there's a new drug on the market, we can compare present to past for shoes and physiology, because yeah. doping is assumed to be similar. Right. The problem we've got now 
is that the doping landscape has changed because of COVID. There was a window of six to 12 months, and it probably persists to this day in some countries because of travel bans, where anti-doping testing could not happen the way that it used to happen. So that is a massive confounder. So where before you always had one or two explanations for a world record, there are now three or four. Mm -hmm. And the new ones are deeply suspicious mm -hmm. because it's either tech in the same athlete or it's doping changing the same athlete. And so I, I just find it really difficult to trust anything that I'm seeing now. And I so, don't I mean, know what, why. What, what you're suggesting, though, is that the, the, the recent slew of these records suggest that that is a unlikely occurrence to be so close together. The fact that we've seen a 10,000 meter broken in the space of a couple of days when for, you know, 20, between 1903 mm. and six, 2016, nobody got within 20 seconds of that yeah. record from the Chinese. Suddenly, there's two world records. We've now about chipped a guy breaking the the, the five thousand meter world record. All these sort of things. That does it raise suspicion? The fact that that is happening so close together. It raises suspicion about whether it's a doping phenomenon or yeah. whether it's the shoes. Yeah. And because we can't quantify either, we can't evaluate those two possibilities, and therefore we can't evaluate the world record. Yeah. That's the problem. Is you know, one of the one of the only good things when the road shoe came out and subsequently the research is that at least we had some lab data showing that that Vaporfly was 4% more economical, used 4% less oxygen. Subsequent independent studies showed, I think the one figure was 2.7% and another study was 4.1%. So we had a ballpark figure where we could say that the Vaporfly was between 2.7 and 4.1% more economical. Well, what does this mean for performance? Okay, we have to extrapolate, but a marathon would be between two and two and a half percent faster. So we had something on which to um, rest an, an objective discussion about performances. So when we started to see dozens of athletes break 206 uh, every single year instead of a handful, when we started to see 202s and 203s, we could say maybe one and a half to two minutes of that is the shoe. With the track spikes, we have no such luxury. We don't know whether they are as effective as the road shoe. No. But there will be some studies, even if it's done by Nike and Adidas, there will be studies that they've done in which time, are seeing the effects of that technology. Yeah, in time they will come out. And yes. then we can certainly have... Independent that, studies. Yeah. But there must be studies done by those particular brands. Yeah, which they keep secret. It's yes. amazing. Like I've tried to get Why would some. they keep them secret? Well... One, one reason is that maybe like the first one to bring it out sets the bar. And then if the other yeah. companies can't achieve that same bar, then they wouldn't want to tell. Because if, Ni if Nike's saying ours is 4%, here's our data, and then the next company comes along at 3 then they'll say, actually, yes. let's rather just keep it quiet and say it's as good. Right. Because by comparison, they'll be exposed. Right. The, other, the other reason, I don't, but, but I don't know. Like, I mean, just because people will, people will assume that if you don't. So you might as well do it. Put it out there. I'm, I'm throwing a hypothesis in here, and I think that a lot of it's got to do with the fact that almost the discussion around performance-enhancing shoes, I think it's the best way to describe them, is that in some ways it's almost negative. So by developing a shoe that it takes away from from an athletic performance, you know, both Chepta Guy and Hassan and all those athletes have come out in defense of the fact that their performances are not necessarily related to the shoot. Mm. They've been very adamant about that. Although Chepta Guy has said you have to embrace modern technology. So he's mm. almost kind of almost. Uh, Which is peculiar, right? Yeah. Well, it's not peculiar that the athletes want to distance themselves from the shoe because you can understand the athlete wants the credit. 
Yes, but they're they also f- accepting that there is technology, technological advances in yeah, shoes. Which is shoes, really yeah. the only sensible thing you can do. I, there was an, as an 800-meter runner from England, Jamie Webb, wrote a piece in The Times with, with Matt Lawton in which he said the shoes were unbelievable, spectacular, and there's no doubt that his improvements over the last 12 months are down to the shoes. And that's on the spikes. And that was in the spikes. Right. Um, and he recently, did he win or qualify for Europeans? But he got an Olympic standard and he posted something on Twitter saying a lot of this has to do with the shoes, but it is also training. So that's that's a realistic, grounded assessment of his yeah. own performance. I wonder if he's sponsored by Nike. He's an Adidas guy. So oh, he, was, he was one of the guys talking about the Adidas spikes. Right, and that's, okay. that's why everyone's saying that these might be just as good. Mm. Uh, Always worry about sponsored athletes and whether you can believe what they say, though. Sure, yeah. Maybe there is a... Des, Des Linden has said that her 50K world record was was definitely in part because of the... She, she's pretty open about the fact that the shoes help. Yeah. Which is refreshing. Nick Willis, who's the New Zealand 1500-meter uh, Olympic medalist, has said the same thing. There was another guy whose name I forget, which is a real shame because he gave the best interview on it. It's a college run in the U.S., studying engineering so he understands the concepts and he was so forthright and said look it's obvious that these shoes make a difference i can't understand why any, anyone would deny it <laughs> so so that's at least uh, you 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 buy a lot of credibility from me if you least acknowledge reality you know yeah. don't come and tell me the earth is flat um but uh, sorry so i got a little bit sidetracked there the what what was the question you asked I got sidetracked as well now. Um, <laughs> sorry. So the point the point is that we don't know the size of the difference that yes. the spike makes. We we had an indication with a road shoe, but it was vague. Now we have nothing. But in a ten thousand lasting twenty nine thirty minutes, one percent is eighteen seconds. Okay. So if that spike makes even a quarter of the difference that the road shoe is alleged to have made, then that's worth. 18 seconds to the performance. Now, if you add 18 back onto Hassan and Gede's times, they're similar to Ayana's. And if you add on another however many seconds because you don't trust the, the doping situation, we, we might be back in the mid-90s. So yeah. this, is the, this is the problem is world records in athletics are meant to signify progress. And we can't stand behind that statement right now. And so as a consequence, in my opinion, records are meaningless. Like, I didn't get excited watching Hassan break it. And, I, and, and the next two days later, I read that Gede had broken it. And I was like, oh, well, of course she did. Yeah. It's not... Well, she's also the 5,000-meter world record holder as well. So she, and that'll, that'll be under, yeah. and under 14 soon, by the way, because she ran the last 5K of her 10,000 in 14.18, which is, <laughs> which is the fastest yeah. time of any athlete from any country other than Ethiopia. In other words, her second 5K is a national record in every other country's 5K. Yeah. So if you can run a 14.18 to close a 29-minute 10K, you'll run a 13.58 5K. So she'll do that soon as well. So, And then when she does that, my reaction will be the same. I'll say, well, of course it did. Because world records just don't mean what they used to. They, they, are, they are basically meaningless because... The whole point of a timed event is that we can celebrate human breakthroughs by saying that this athlete is five seconds better than that athlete within a narrow generation. Obviously, we don't compare uh, Cheptegei to Pavo Nermi and we don't compare Gedai to Ingrid Christensen. But we have to have some degree of confidence that we're seeing physiological, not technological, and certainly not doping breakthroughs. And my, my concern with the shoes is that they're kind of like a shiny um, shiny object to distract people with. Oh, look, here's the shoe. Mm. Meanwhile, 
one and a half percent out of the two percent improvements coming from the doping. Yeah, and I, we just don't know. And that's the point. A lot of people may send me things on Twitter saying, "Oh, you, how can you say this so, so definitively, guys?" Like I'm literally saying the opposite. I'm saying the problem is we can't be definitive. Yeah, we don't know the magnitude of the shoe. We don't know the magnitude of the doping, and therefore we can't trust what we are seeing. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, and I'm um, sorry to actually uh, sort of call out Sean Ingle on this, but he's quoted in a story on The Guardian, of course, Sean, a big friend of the, of the podcast. He says in his piece around G'day's time, he says, in the space of 48 hours, the 10,000-meter world record has fallen by another 16 seconds because of the effect of the new spikes. Mm. And, and I think, you know, what you're saying is, Yes, we can. There is certain. There is a certain element that you could say, hypothesizing that that is probably true. It's, but it's not necessarily the whole story. For sure, it's. I think it's plausible that the spikes could be worth one to one and a half percent, and that would give you eighteen to thirty seconds in yeah. a ten k, and that would put these performances back up to kind of still not great, but kind of the Chinese level. Yeah. So it is plausible that this is entirely the shoe. Yeah, it is utterly implausible that none of it's the shoe. But what seems most likely to me is that it's a combination somewhere between all shoe and part shoe, part doping, and we mm. just can't stand behind any of it. So yeah, it's difficult. It's, and then and then you look at this. It's happening on the sprint end as well. I feel a bit sorry for the athletes in some respects this time. because we Big are time. obviously taking a, a reasonably cynical approach to this, but maybe a realistic approach to this given the history of athletics and uh, what's happened. And we've talked, you know, just a few moments ago around Shelby, uh, who's also been caught with, with drugs. So I, I can imagine that, you know, it's very difficult to look at performances. If we knew, and I think as we talked about in our podcast last year around the Shree the Brack running, what's coming into question it's just another element that questions what we see, mm. as you correctly said just exactly. a few moments ago. And I think we need to be able to trust what we see. Correct. Final question, because I know just we need to so finish. I just have yeah. to say one other thing on anti-doping, because you're right, this is a very cynical approach, and it does make it sound like we're saying that the whole world's anti-doping system is broken and therefore every athlete is doping. That's not what we're saying here. Mm. But the principle of anti-doping, it's especially the biological passport, and, and this is literally what WADA themselves will stand behind. They've, they say this. I was at a conference in Rome and every single WADA speaker pushes this message. Is Our principle is that regular testing is a disincentive to dope. Because if we test you often enough and if you're in our spotlight often enough, then you can't get away with doping the way that you would if, you, if it was black. And as if yeah. the lights were off. Yeah. Great. And they're going to stand behind that when they have to justify their expenses. They're going to say, look... We are now testing this many athletes this often, and as a consequence, we are confident that there is less doping than before. If you're going to stand behind that, you have to accept the reverse, is that the moment you withdraw the spotlight, the athletes will go back to the way that they used to dope. You can't have it both ways. You can't say that we're stopping them by shining a spotlight on them, but when that spotlight's off, we trust them. You can't do both. Do you agree? I agree. Yes. So therefore, what COVID and the lockdown and the travel bans have done is reduce the frequency of the spotlight, and the implication must be less trust in the system. You just you can't have it, in my opinion, both ways. And that's why, <laughs> as a general principle, the Olymp this sport at the moment, for me, is less trustworthy than ever before. Uh, what I don't want is for this to be like, oh, she's definitely doping because she's a world record holder. What I'm saying is that we just can't know right now. Yeah. And that's sad. And I guess we'll never really know. Course, Until we, we look at the actual performance of those shoes and work out whether those yeah, shoes are 
possible. And we didn't know before. I mean, no. we didn't know before COVID either because we know that anti-doping was not perfect, but it's now less imperfect, so, sorry, more imperfect than it used to be. So it is a it is a very lousy stage of this to be in. I mean, people see a world record, they want to celebrate. But I think realistic folk are saying, uh, hang on, what are we seeing here? And then they get upset with you. So anyway, I hope our listeners aren't upset about this negative tone. Let's well, move it somewhere. if you disagree with us or whether you agree with us, don't forget you can engage with us on our Twitter, Sports SciPod. And of course, Ross is also on Twitter himself, Sports Scientist. Am I right? I should know uh, this. You always forget. Just look up Ross Tucker on Twitter and you'll this. be there. But I think it's Sports Scientist's is on his Twitter feed and uh, let us know what you think about whether we're being too cynical about world records. Uh, I'm quite excited about the fact that Shelley Ann Fraser-Price uh, ran the second fastest 100 meter in in history. We all know around the cloud that uh, sits over the head of Florence Griffith Joyner who ran that world record many years ago. I think her time was 10, uh, 10.49 in 1988 and the 10.63 63 that she ran, that was uh, Fraser-Price. Um, is it possible, just as a final thought here, that we could see a world record go at the Tokyo Olympics in the women's 100? No. No. No, no 0.14. Too much. That's too much. <laughs> I mean... Maybe in the events post that when there's bigger money incentives. When there's big, big better shoes. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, you know, 10.63 at the age of 34, when everyone's saying, like, Olympic swan song territory, and now you run not just a PB for yourself, but, like, the second fastest time yeah. in the history. I mean... It is incredible. Yeah, it is incredible. And I suppose one thing about the Olympics that we always talk about is that the Olympics are a championship running type of running where it's all about winning, not necessarily running fast times. And I think yeah, we'll but see you that. you win 100, if they're going to... Because, I mean, they've got Asher Smith, there's that Shikari Richardson, yeah. Fraser Price now. I don't know where Elaine Thompson is if she's just not on form. But, I mean, that, that could be... that. that I suspect, I don't know when, when Florence Griffith Joyner did 10.49, I don't know what second and third were, but I would imagine that these Tokyo Olympics will produce the fastest top three time collection in the history of the sport. There you go. But I'd be surprised if it's under 10.5. In fact, I'd be surprised if it's under 10.6, never mind 10, 10 10.4 something. Well, we'll see. Maybe there'll be something exciting for us to watch in Tokyo. We're about a month and a bit away from the Tokyo Olympics and it looks like things are going to happen there and uh, for those of us who are involved in sport it is quite an exciting time as we build towards the showcase even though there won't be lots of spectators I think there's going to be lots to look forward to uh, both on the running and any kind of sporting front um, in Tokyo so we're looking forward to doing that and we're hoping to bring you some of our specials around specific sports as we lead up build up towards the Tokyo Olympics we're looking at uh, doing some interviews with uh, some of the more minor sports but also like finding out really what it takes to be a competitive athlete at things like rowing and all the sports that we don't necessarily see in the limelight very often on our television screens but uh, for us for now it's goodbye Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 